0: We've been trying to understand why such a disaster fell on the British army on the 1st of July 1916, which was the first day of the Battle of the Somme. The key we've seen was the British Commander-in-Chief Douglas Haig's refusal to face up to the basic facts of trench warfare.
1: By 1916, it was clear to the French how the German entrenched defences could be breached. The basic formula was simple – Calculate the length of your front and the depth of your advance on the basis of the complexity of the German defences and how many big artillery guns you had.
0: Well, the French on the Somme had twice as many effective big guns as Haig, and the French set realistic objectives for themselves along a nine-mile front. Haig sent his men over the top along a 16-mile front and ordered them to break through all the German lines in one go. So what occurred was a disaster predictable in almost every detail. We've described it as a war crime against the British Army's own men.
1: What nobody ever seems to tell you is that by the end of the first day, the French had actually broken right through the German lines. Even more extraordinarily and even more rarely mentioned, the British XIII Corps, fighting right next to the French, had learned and applied the French scientific method. And with some help from the French artillery,
0: they too had broken right through through. So now it was up to Haig and his commanders to do something about it. But what happens next is yet another story about everything that did not work in the British Army.
1: Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope (laughs) Middlebone.
0: And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us.
1: So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. The French achieved a major breakthrough on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and so did the English XIII Corps, fighting immediately alongside them at the southern end of the British line. Now it was up to the British Commander-in-Chief Douglas Haig to
0: seize the moment. But Haig would do nothing at all. On the 3rd of July, he met the French Commander-in-Chief Joseph Joffre and the French general in command on the somme Ferdinand Foch. Joffre demanded that Haig renew the attack. But the French could see that faced with the staggering collapse of his plan on day one, the British Commander-in-Chief was incapable of doing anything. Haig, in fact, as good as admitted his complete bewilderment. He mumbled well, he, uh, he could try and advance at the southern end of the line where the French and the thirteen Corps had been so successful. He apparently seemed to think that the rest of his army should stay put and lick its wounds. The French retorted quite correctly that completely ignoring the rest of the line would just allow the Germans to concentrate their men and more importantly all of their big guns on the south. It was a mad strategy. Joffre, Remembering the French army dictum that the British would always fight to the last Frenchman, lost his temper with Haig. It wasn't the first time.
1: Even though the difference between his generalship and that of the French had been cruelly exposed by the events of the first day, and even though under the agreement between the French and British Joffre was his commanding officer, Haig told him to stop ordering him around. He said, as he always did, that this was no way to treat a gentleman. Well, of course, as we have discovered, in the British army, no gentleman officer could be ordered what to do. That was more important than saving
0: lives or winning battles. So Haig slunk back to his HQ. Privately, he wished he could just quit the Somme altogether, walk away from the mess he'd made. He'd try attacking around Ypres in Belgium instead, with no French to watch over him. In the event, he tried exactly that a year later, at Passchendaele and he made an equally bloody hash of it. Back in July 1916, the French liaison officer at Hague's HQ reported that the British generals had simply sunk into, quote, almost complete inactivity.
1: On the same day that Hague was meeting with the French generals, the 3rd of July, the British Lieutenant Colonel Frank Maxwell crept out from the southern end of the line to see what the Germans were doing. Now, Maxwell's commanding officer was Major General Ivor Maxey, who was one of the two 13 Corps major generals at the southern end of the line who'd worked with the French and had shared their amazing breakthrough on the first day. Frank Maxwell was well known as a reckless individual, but he was one of Maxey's best officers. He'd already won the Victoria Cross, the highest award for bravery in the Boer War, and he was very much Ivor Maxey's kind of commander, a thinking soldier and popular with his men. So Maxie sent Frank Maxwell to crawl cautiously forward. And what he discovered was that there were no Germans for nearly two miles.
0: Well, Maxwell reported back to Maxie. And Maxie told his boss, who was Lieutenant General Walter Congreve, he would also won a VC. Together, they now pleaded with the general in charge of the British 4th Army, Henry Rawlinson, who was effectively Haig's deputy on the Somme. Now, they said, now is the moment to exploit the breakthrough before the Germans can bring up reinforcements or get together any other lines of defence. But of course, Haig, who'd blustered before the battle that his cavalry would ride 70 miles into open country like Napoleon, was now completely paralysed. The land lay empty of Germans for three more days. Instead of coordinating any advance in the south, Haig ordered the British further north to make a series of, well, half-hearted forays, it was as if Haig was some kind of sulky schoolboy who'd been ticked off on this occasion by the French and was making an empty show of doing as he was told, the British gained some very small, strategically significant pockets of territory, but the price was terrible. In the course of the next fortnight, the British lost yet another twenty-five thousand men.
1: The French, who didn't have to wait for Haig, went on advancing. That had always been the contingency plan of the British, as they predictably did failed to get anywhere. On the 6th of July, General Joffre, not given to wild talk, actually found himself talking about victory. And so too did the usually level-headed French general, Marie-Emile Fayol. By the 12th of July, the French reported having captured 12,000 German prisoners. Fayol wrote in his diary, quotes, The Bosch front is broken open for eight kilometres. But then he added despairingly, And we cannot exploit it. The reason they couldn't exploit it was, of course, that Haig's army further north had got nowhere. If the French went on fighting the Germans on their own, they feared the British would do nothing at all, leaving them isolated, horribly exposed on their flanks. Meanwhile, of course, all this delay was giving the Germans time to reorganise their (laughs) defence.
0: Despite the French confidence that they were on the verge of a major war-changing breakthrough, Haig appeared unable to make any decisions for days. But on the 3rd of July 1916, while Haig was moaning that the French weren't treating him like a gentleman, his officers were taking things into their own hands. Henry Rawlinson, in command of the 4th Army on the Somme, and effectively Haig's deputy, began to plan for what he called, a really decisive Battle of Bapome, which would go near to finishing the war. Now, Bapome was more than seven miles behind the German lines. Rawlinson had always opposed in the past Haig's grandiose strategies, but now he reckoned that if they started at once and exploited the gains made in the south by the French and Maxi and the others, they could get to Bapome in four days.
1: Exciting. But as soon as he got to hear of it, Haig vetoed the plan. Rawlinson protested and reluctantly moved the attack back to the 10th of July, but Haig went on wrecking everything. In stark contrast to his ridiculous plans before the 1st of July, now he began cavilling and complaining about the number of German machine guns there were and how much heavy artillery the Germans had. He said that the British infantry at the southern end of the line lacked discipline and training, even though these were the very men who'd taken all their objectives on the first day. Haig now came up with his own plan for an advance that everyone saw at once was completely impractical. One of his senior officers dismissed it as, quote, dreadful, an academic plan that would have been given good marks at Staff College, but was useless in practice. Its only result was more days of confusion
0: and delay at British GHQ. What begins to be clear is that Rawlinson and the other senior officers had now had enough of Haig's arrogance and incompetence. Whatever Haig said, Rawlinson decided the attack would be led by the two corps in the south, who'd taken their objectives and broken through on the first day. They began to make plans and preparations, building and mending access roads, sending up reconnaissance flights. Troops took turns in the front line to familiarise themselves with the terrain. On the 11th of July, Rawlinson and the other senior commanders met Haig and made it very plain what they thought of his obstruction. Haig, of course, refused to give way on anything. But over the next couple of days, he quietly conceded, one by one, most of their demands. It was, well, it was a pantomime, losing more precious time, the worst possible way to plan a military operation.
1: The attack was finally launched on the 14th of July. What makes it significant is that with Haig's bungling interference this time kept to a minimum, the British were able to put into practice everything that had been known for months, but which Haig had until then vetoed. The key to it, of course,
0: was the artillery.
1: Noel Curley Birch, in command of artillery, had told Haig plainly it was madness to spread his big guns so thinly. So this time, Birch collected two thirds of the big guns that had been available on the 1st of July and concentrated them on a front that was much less than a third as long and much less deep. This gave him one heavy gun for 19 yards. Well, that was even more than the French had had on the 1st of July. They would fire 375,000 rounds over two days in the pre-bombardment, most of it in the final couple of minutes. Do the maths, and it works out as 18 times the number of shells per yard of German trench the British had fired before the 1st of July attack. And this time, Curly Birch would make sure they used delayed action fuses to blow up the deep German dugouts. Well, Delayed action fuses had been available from before the war. But until now, the British artillery had largely and inexplicably failed to use them.
0: The other thing that was very different on the 14th of July was that the attackers would get into no man's land under the cover of darkness, an attack at dawn. Now, historians have suggested this was just an accident. But of course, as we've seen in our previous discussions, it was such an obvious thing to do that private soldiers in the trenches couldn't believe they weren't already doing it. So it seems much more likely that the folly of attacking on the first day at 7.30 in broad daylight had been part of Haig's obsessive failure to trust the new recruits that had volunteered in 1914 and 1915. Oh, surely they'd wander off, get lost at night. The fact that the utterly obvious tactic of a nighttime attack was finally used on the 14th of July may very well have been because Rawlinson and his corps commanders had finally had enough of Haig and his narrow preconceptions.
1: It rained that night and the soldiers lying in no man's land were drenched. But when it began, the attack went brilliantly well. This time the infantry reported that the German lines had been so comprehensively shelled that they crossed over several of them before they even realised it. For the very first time in the war, German casualties outnumbered the British. It confirmed once again that trench defences were by no means an insuperable problem. The key thing you had to do was to ignore Douglas Haig. Oh, and do your artillery
0: preparation properly. But then, by mid-afternoon, the attack began to falter. Of course, as always, there were pockets of German resistance that proved difficult to crack. More important, because of poor British intelligence, not for the first time, it turned out that the British had chosen to attack on the very morning the Germans were changing their battalions over. So that with new men arriving and the old ones leaving, there were twice as many Germans in some places as they'd expected.
1: So it would have been a very different story if they'd gone earlier, as Rawlinson and the French had wanted.
0: It might very well have been.
1: One popular explanation for the British failure to exploit its break-in that day was that the cavalry failed to show up. As you'll know if you've been with us in our previous discussions... Ever since 1914, the cavalry had been standing about waiting for the order to charge and win the war and claim all the glory, and it had never yet come.
0: Well, it's absolutely true. On the 14th of July, 1916, the 2nd Secunderabad Cavalry Brigade were lined up and ready to go. There are well-known photographs of them, apparently taken on that day or shortly before, drawn up in orderly rows or riding in smart file. They're a romantic mixture of lances and guns, turbans and tin hats. The problem was that horse and man presented an enormous target to modern weapons, and so, although in the photographs they're all supposedly poised for action, they were in fact still 12 miles behind the front. No wonder they look so relaxed.
1: At last, at 7.40 in the morning of 14th of July 1916, the order to advance came, but the ground was wet from the overnight rains, and the horses were skittish. So the 1st of the cavalry didn't get to the British front lines until 9.30. And by then, it was too late. The infantry had had to get on as best it could without them. But already, some of the important momentum
0: had been lost. The
1: Secunderabad
0: horsemen did finally get into the action in the afternoon, chasing after some fleeing Germans between High and Delver Woods. Some even charged with their lances and killed 16 Germans. It's said that the British infantry cheered, although whether in excitement or irony is not recorded. The Secunderabad riders probably were a fine sight, although ten of their men were killed and forty-three of their horses. Uh, Haig made a special note of that in his diary. Unlike, you'll notice, the scale of casualties on the 1st of July, which he had not noted in his diary. The cavalry think their time is coming soon, wrote Haig. But it was obvious to everyone else, the people on the spot, that the cavalry were a complete irrelevance. After their few brief seconds of romantic glory, the horsemen had to dismount and hunker down in trenches like any other soldiers.
1: The cavalry were not the reason for the British failure on the 14th of July. That was, as so often in this war, the British army's ludicrous structure of command. (laughs) After an initial break-in, the British attack on the Somme on the 14th of July began to falter. The problem was that nobody at the front could take a decision.
0: As the army saying goes, no plan survives the first contact with the enemy. Of course, things change quickly and decisions have to be made about what to do. You know, we get used to watching battles in the cinema where courageous soldiers run forward whenever they see a chance. But the British army in the First World War did not function like that. As we've seen. Hague and his generals set the objectives, but the key figures in an attack were the corps and division commanders in their HQ in Chateau, miles behind the lines. They were the ones who protested loudly if they were ordered around, like a room full of old buffers in a club. They were protected by an archaic code of gentlemanly etiquette, and also by a dense network of influential friends and relations. And of course, they stuck together. They could always blame any failure on some poor junior officer further down. So here was the key problem. It meant that as the battle developed and unfolded, the junior officers at the front line were far too afraid to take any decisions for themselves. Haig in particular
1: had a reputation for sacking brigadiers, over a hundred of them in the course of the war. One of them, who was an old adversary of his from staff college days, he sacked on the 7th of July in the middle of those fraught days on the Somme. So if you were a junior or a middle-ranking officer and wanted to keep your pension, you kept your head down. You had a family to feed. You did what you were told. As the attack on the 14th of July advanced quickly away from the British front lines, things changed quickly. Decisions needed to be taken. But by now, communications were very difficult. Radios were then far too cumbersome to carry around. Telephones had an obvious weakness. 48 million miles of telephone cable were used by the British in the war, but however hard they tried to lay it underground or string it up in trees or on posts, it inevitably
0: got broken. And you obviously couldn't send messages by word of mouth. You know the old army joke about sending messages? The guys at the front make a breakthrough. They pass a message back along the line. Send reinforcements, we're going to advance. By the time the message gets back to HQ, the generals are told, send three and fourpence, we're going to a dance. (laughs) (laughs) The only sure way to communicate was with runners. Extraordinarily brave men whose fatality rate was close to 50%. But clambering through a wreckage of trenches, struggling around trench holes and dodging the enemy took time. In fact, it took hours. And in the meantime, the battle was changing minute by minute.
1: Wasn't Adolf Hitler a runner? And and didn't he have a dog with him?
0: Yes, he did. And an enormous moustache at the time. But he was in Belgium at Langemarck on the Ypres Salient, not on the Somme. In fact, the German army organised itself much more intelligently. Officers on the front line could take decisions. But this in turn meant that if the Germans lost ground, they would rapidly reorganise and counter-attack. And the result of that was that any contact with the German army was completely unpredictable. To defeat it, you needed fleet-footed, quick-witted officers on the ground who could take decisions nimbly and flexibly, which was, of course, the exact opposite of the British junior officers in the First World War. The historian Tim Mormon
1: has made a study of the Battle of the 14th July. Quotes, muddle and confusion were marked at all levels of command once the break-in had been achieved. Brigade commanders, quotes, displayed a remarkable lack of initiative. Orders, says Mormon, from senior officers miles away were followed no matter how irrelevant they'd become. Quotes, confusion and uncertainty were endemic. The battle, concluded Mormon, was lost at core level meaning among the gentlemen, sportsmen and hunters, the Edwardian leisured amateurs who decided everything from their chateau miles behind the lines.
0: An Ulsterman, Brigadier General Herbert Potter, was one of those relatively junior officers caught in the middle between the men and the commanders. He later recalled that he walked, it's an extraordinary account, that he walked on the afternoon of the 14th of July up to what had been the German second line, right in the centre of the battle. He didn't encounter a single German or come under any enemy fire. Now, Potter, whose account is similar to those of several middle-ranking officers, goes on. I had been very strictly enjoined, note that, very strictly enjoined, not to push the advance beyond the final objective laid down. Leaving the consolidation proceeding on that line, I walked out alone to examine the ground in front. It was, he continues, It was a lovely day. The ground was very open and sloped gently up to a high ridge in front. So I wandered on. Wandered on? Sounds like a Sunday stroll. I wandered on until I found myself approaching a large wood which continued over the crest of the ridge. Well, you'd expect him to be facing you know, German machine guns and things from the wood, but no, he said, there was no sign whatever of the enemy. As I had advanced about a mile... A mile? A mile, and was quite alone, I considered it time to return. Extraordinary <laughs> <That's laughs> kind Herbert Potter's extraordinary afternoon
1: stroll or wander through the French summer sun confirms what a colossally wasted opportunity this was. And it was exactly the same story as the one Maxwell had told on the 3rd of July after Maxi's advance. The British had successfully advanced to the German second line across a three and a quarter mile front. There were no Germans ahead. The opportunity presented itself begging for a major breakthrough. But middle-ranking officers like Herbert Potter had been strictly enjoined...
0: Strictly enjoined...
1: ...to go no further. And they were not about to do anything on their own initiative.
0: Well, you don't need to look any further for the reason the British failed for four years to get any further than breaking into the German defences, but never breaking through. As every battle developed, breaking in here, held back there, the original battle plans fell quickly and hopelessly out of date. But the men on the ground simply lacked the initiative to take the opportunities that presented themselves. They weren't killed by the Germans, they were suffocated by a culture of blame designed to protect the gentlemen, major generals and the ranks above them.
1: Well, we should say that even if they hadn't broken through, getting to the German second line on the Somme on the 14th of July 1916 had been a very creditable achievement. Another great success for those divisions at the southern end of the line. The British grandly began to call it the Battle of Bazantin Ridge. And naturally, Haig tried to take the credit. He met the local French commander, Ferdinand Foch, and recorded triumphantly in his diary that the French general had, quote, openly said their troops could not have carried out such an attack.
0: You can't I'm you thinking that something may have been lost here in translation. Haig, of course, took it to mean that his British men were far better than the French. The evidence rather shows that the French infantry would not have carried out such an attack for the reason they wouldn't have been required to. The attack had cost another 9,000 British casualties. French generals tried not to lose their men. But by now the French had come to believe that the British officers were so incompetent that they would have to insist on inserting French officers into the British command structure to show them how it should be done. A
1: month later, on the 15th of September, 1916, as we saw in an earlier discussion, 32 of the British Army's newly arrived tanks crashed through the German lines on the Somme. By 10am, one of them was driving down the main street of Flair, a mile into German lines, with the British infantry cheering behind. Many of the Germans of the 9th Bavarian Regiment had fled in panic as the tanks came grinding slowly
0: toward them. One of the German operations officers who saw it was a certain Fritz von Papen. Actually, in 1933, Fritz von Papen would be the German Chancellor, the man who negotiated the deal that put Adolf Hitler in power.
1: But in 1916, von Papen was a German operations officer, and he vividly remembered that day in September when the tanks came. Quotes, There wasn't a single reserve company for scores of miles behind us. A complete tactical breakthrough had taken place.
0: But then, what did von Papen add? Well, you guessed. The British did not seem to realise it. A few dozen administrative personnel were all that stood between the enemy and a major victory. A major victory. But, once again, the moment for a British breakthrough had come and gone. Another big moment for the cavalry had arrived, and once again they were nowhere to be seen. They hung back because they had no orders to advance. Quotes, still waiting about in the mud, as one young officer wrote home the infantry officers, also having no orders to advance and afraid to make their own minds up, simply dug in and waited.
1: The British never acquired the ability to convert a break-in to a breakthrough. The quicker-thinking Germans always had the time to organise defence and counter-attack before the British could exploit a success. But, of course, that was not the story that the British army ever wanted the public or the politicians to hear. <laughs>
0: What the first weeks of the Battle of the Somme had shown was that if you used your heavy artillery correctly, the German system of entrenched defence could be broken into. But it also demonstrated beyond any doubt that the British Army's structure of command could not then organise a breakthrough. After the 14th of July, 1916,
1: the Battle of the Somme effectively became a battle of attrition, a body count, an attempt to kill more of the enemy's men than he killed of yours. It was exactly the strategy that the American general, Westmoreland, would adopt in the Vietnam War 50 years later. And it was just as doomed to failure then as it had been in
0: 1916. A subject to which we must come back. On the 13th of November 1916, the British launched yet another attack. The bombardment was twice as heavy and much better organised than it had been on the first day. The British tried and failed yet again to take Serres, where so many pals had been killed on that first day. This time they did take beaumont Amel, where so many Newfoundlanders had died that first day. But yet again, the British proved incapable of exploiting their break-in.
1: Three days later, the snows came. Haig was all for going on through the winter. Rawlinson refused. Enough was enough. Rawlinson was right, as he had been so often that year on the Somme. The winter of 1916-17 to 17 was so bad that centuries died of hypothermia at their posts. And detachments, sent to get rations, got lost in the snow and were found frozen to death.
0: Since the Battle on the Somme had started, the British and French had advanced about six miles along a front of 16 miles. But the overall situation of the war had not fundamentally changed As a result of the battle, 419,654 men from Britain and her empire were dead or wounded, 202,567 French, and, so far as anyone can discover, the figures are still disputed, somewhere between 500,000 and 600,000 of the German soldiers. In all, over a million men dead and wounded.
1: On the 23rd of December, 1916, Haig, forgetting his vain and fanciful plan for a complete breakthrough on the first day, claimed that he had always intended the Somme to be a battle of attrition, a body count. The implication presumably was that he'd won it. But do the sums? The French and British had suffered more casualties than the Germans. As we've seen, Haig was really very bad at maths.
0: But the cover-up had already begun, as historian Elaine McFarland has written. Quotes: "The war elevated whitewashing to a new military art form." There are many ordinary soldiers' accounts of the Somme, and they tell you, as you'd expect, what one individual could see from just one tiny corner of the battlefield. But read any officer's account of the events on the Somme, and you quickly realise that there's as much that's not said as is said.
1: Hubert Rees, the man who'd been temporarily in charge of the pals at Sayre on the first day, states in his account that the artillery bombardment intensified in the 10 minutes between 7.20 and 7.30. Quotes, it was magnificent. The trenches in front of Serre changed shape and dissolved minute by minute under the terrific hail of steel.
0: What had really occurred, of course, was that the artillery bombardment in this sector, as we saw last time, had lifted altogether at 7.20, leaving the Pals already in No Man's Land with no cover at all, except some trench mortars and it seems a few field guns. One German machine gun crew actually ran out into No Man's Land to get a better shot. It was widely believed that Haig's friend and intelligence officer John Charteris
1: largely faked his own diary of these events. No doubt including those entries that say that the battle had always been intended just to, quote, wear out the Germans a little.
0: As we've seen, another of Hayes' friends, Noel Curley Birch, whom he'd put in command of the artillery, had warned him plainly that his battle plan was mad because it completely disregarded the feebleness of his big guns. But when the official history of the Great War was being written in the 1920s, Birch personally persuaded its editor, Major General James Edmonds, to tone down any criticism of Hague. He persuaded Edmonds to make the utterly outrageous claim that Hague had only decided on the impractical plan for a massive breakthrough because, quote, of persistent pressure from the French commander-in-chief Joseph Joffre. There's the wonderful story of Field Marshal Sir Archibald Armar
1: Montgomery Massingbird. That's, Did you get that? <laughs>
0: that's Field Marshal Sir Archibald Armar Montgomery Massingbird.
1: Well, he'd been Haig's chief of staff at the Somme. And sometime in the 1920s or early 1930s, Montgomery Massingbird actually stole the Fourth Army diary for the period of the Somme and replaced it in the archives with his own version of events. He then succeeded in persuading James Edmonds, who was writing the official history, to make yet more changes to the official account. The Somme offensive, it finally read, quotes, had no strategic object
0: except attrition. Haig himself lied about the Somme from start to finish. He made a note in his diary at the end of that first day about those amateurish Powell regiments at the northern end of the line, quotes, I'm inclined to believe from further reports that fewer of the 8th Corps left their trenches, exclamation mark. Well, yes, Douglas, they didn't leave their trenches because most of them were killed or wounded before they'd even reached their front trenches. And that was because you had completely miscalculated the artillery required and hung the pals out to dry at the northern end of the line where every German gun for two miles northward could hit them. But it didn't matter. Haig had already begun to invent his own version of history.
1: There's an illuminating story that on the 8th of July, a week into the battle, Haig met the military correspondent of the Times, Charles Accourt Reppington, at GHQ, way behind the lines. Haig tried to cancel the meeting, but he'd been told that Reppington was too influential with the British public and that in the light of the immense losses the army suffered, he'd better meet him and be nice to him. Well, Rappington had done his homework. A day or two earlier, he had met the
0: French general, Ferdinand Foch. And that, of course, was in those very first days after the beginning of the battle, when the French were so mad with the British for their failures.
1: And Foch bluntly explained the difference between the British failure and the French success. It was, of course, the artillery. The British had sprayed theirs all over an enormous area to little effect. The French had concentrated on the German front line as well as destroying their barbed wire. That's exactly what
0: we've been saying. Historian Andrew Morris takes up the story of Rappington's meeting with Haig. Quotes, Haig gave a brief exposition of how the battle had progressed so far, effectively saying nothing, before announcing he would welcome criticisms. Oh my goodness. But when Rappington suggested, well, perhaps the artillery could possibly have been deployed more effectively (laughs) on the first day of the offensive, Haig bluntly denied there could be any truth in the suggestion. Haig was clearly unprepared, says Morris, to talk about any substantive issue of real interest. Well Reppington wrote icily after the meeting, quotes, I don't know which of us was more glad to be rid of the other.
1: What Haig didn't know was that Reppington was about to become embroiled in a campaign to get rid of him. <laughs> As the Battle of the Somme continued from one failure to the next, a campaign understandably got underway in Britain to get rid of Douglas Haig, the British Commander-in-Chief. On the 8th of August, the King himself, George V, visited the Somme and had a private conversation with Haig at GHQ, way behind the lines. They'd been friends for years. Haig's wife had been a lady-in-waiting to Queen Alexandra and they'd got married at Buckingham Palace. According to Haig's diary, he and the King briefly discussed the war, but then spent most of their time talking about the political opposition to Haig back in Britain. King George told Haig that Winston Churchill was saying that nothing was being achieved on the Somme. Haig's predecessor, Sir John French, whose job Haig had effectively stolen,
0: had also been stirring things up, along with other generals Haig had sacked. Well, it was true. Sir John French had got together with Reppington, the Times' military correspondent, and was trying to put together a campaign with Lloyd George, who was then Secretary of State for War. Well, Lloyd George had discussed Foch's statements on the artillery with Reppington and asked him straight out who he would put in Haig's place. Reppington suggested Edmund the Bull Allenby. Oh, no. <laughs> All the people. It's about the one general with an even more savage and heartless reputation than Haig. Very fortunately for everyone, Lloyd George couldn't remember who Allenby was. In September, Lloyd George also
1: visited the Somme. He met the two commanders-in-chief, Joffre and Haig, but he also went to see Ferdinand Foch and tried to get him to repeat what he'd said to Reppington about the British artillery being useless. Foch, who was himself now under political pressure back in Paris, decided to say nothing.
0: Well, he didn't want to set a precedent of politicians sacking generals, maybe.
1: Of course, when Hay got to hear that Lloyd George had met Foch, he was outraged that he should be so ungentlemanly, un-gentlemanly as to discuss military matters with a Frenchman. But early in October, Lloyd George sent Sir John French to try to get that artillery evidence from the French. French, French, French. Once again, <laughs> once again, however, General Foch would say nothing.
0: Lloyd George also began to put pressure on the top British brass back in Britain for information to use against Hague. Whatever they thought of Hague's failure, they too closed ranks. Gentlemen in the club, of course. General William Robertson, who was chief of the Imperial General Staff and therefore head of the entire army, complained he was now spending more time fighting off Lloyd George than fighting the Germans. As
1: November went on, the Asquith government in London looked increasingly shaky, not least because of Haig's disastrous failure on the Somme. It seemed very likely that Lloyd George, of all people, would replace Asquith as Prime Minister. Reppington was convinced that as the weather closed in, Haig went on and on pushing for more futile attacks on the Somme simply because he was desperate for some result to save his job.
0: But in the event Haig was not saved by any success in France he was saved by his friends in high places back in London. When Asquith finally resigned, King George tried desperately to find anyone other than Lloyd George to replace him. But in the end, Lloyd George was the only choice. However, he would head up a coalition that was largely comprised not of Lloyd George's Liberals, but of Tories. And one of the conditions of Lloyd George's appointment as Prime Minister turned out to be that Haig had to stay. He'd been saved... Uh, Perhaps by the Tories, but more likely by his old friend, the King himself. If that's right, it was a crass royal manoeuvre. It would cost thousands more young men their lives and prolong the war by many months.
1: Three weeks later, the King wrote Haig a fawning letter, promoting him to field marshal, the highest rank in the army.
0: We'll we'll spare you the contents. In January, Haig was summoned to 10 Downing Street and given a dressing down by Lord George. Haig haughtily replied that the French army, quote, lacks discipline and thoroughness, and that his attack on the Somme had been the only way to save it. A deeply dishonourable slur. Talk about ungentlemanly. But in the British army and among its influential supporters, the myth grew up that the British had saved the French on the Somme and that the battle had been a turning point for the German army, a catastrophe from which it never recovered. You still meet and read plenty of people who believe it.
1: Well, what happened to Henry Rawlinson, the commander of the 4th Army, who deposed Haig all along and ended up ignoring him? Well, he was, as historian William Philpot puts it, wrested from army command during the course of 1917. And while Lloyd George was ousting Asquith in London, a political coup was also going on in Paris. In London, Haig was saved by George V... But in Paris, both Joseph Joffre and Ferdinand Foch, the brilliant architect of the French breakthrough on the Somme, were sacked. Foch is nowadays agreed to be perhaps the best military thinker of his generation. It's one of the greatest injustices
0: in military history. The story, however, does have a more satisfactory coda. It occurred on the Somme 18 months after the battle. The date is the 26th of March 1918 and the scene is the town hall at Doulon, just 15 miles northwest of Serres, the northernmost end of what had been the British line. You go into the Hotel de Ville and you climb onto the first floor and there you find a room decorated with enormous frescoes. One of them shows the town mayor and various French politicians gathering in the town square. where It's clearly set at the time of the First World War. The other fresco shows the politicians seated at a table with a clutch of generals.
1: When that meeting took place in this room on the 26th of March 1918, the situation of the war was desperate. Five days before, the Germans had launched a massive assault. The British had fallen back and back. Now they were fighting desperately just a few miles away, across the very same battlefields on the Somme, where they'd lost so many men in 1916. Their commander-in-chief... Field Marshal Douglas Haig seemed completely unable to prevent what would be a catastrophic German breakthrough. Had the Germans succeeded, it would have brought about a very different end to the war. No British historian would now be writing, as some do, that in 1918 the British army proved its ability to master modern warfare by defeating the
0: Germans. Well, in this room in the Hôtel de Vie in Doulon that day in March 1918, the politicians and generals took a huge decision there was only one way to stop the Germans. After years of pompous obstruction, failure and vanity, Haig would have to give up ultimate control of the British army. Now, before it was too late, they sign a paper. One man, it states, would now be, quotes, charged by the British and French governments with the coordination of the action of both the Allied armies on the Western Front. That man, the man who in reality over the following months successfully planned and executed the final defeat of the Germans, was of course not British at all. He was the best military mind in his generation, the French general, Ferdinand Foch. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or you can contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. And don't forget that it's easy to listen to a whole series. You just use the playlist you can find on SoundCloud and Spotify. There are 60 episodes and building.